This is the Fantastic Books Podcast. The fantasy and sci-fi book review podcast for fantasy fanatics, book nerds, and lovers of lore and stories. Covering some of the most loved fantasy series as well as brand new novels. With your hosts, Anna and Sam. Let's see what we're reading this week. Welcome back, fantastic listeners. This is Sam. And Anna. We are covering The Sapiens Empire by Nathan Ogloff. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. I'm so excited to be here. Ah, glad to have you. So far, we've covered chapters one through five, and I'm very excited to dive in and analyze these characters and interesting locations that you have expanded upon in your world. But before we get into that content, just wanted to get an opportunity to learn a little bit more about you and your writing process. So if you'd like, give us a little background on yourself. Well, I, I can tell you right now that in, in terms of background, I've known I've wanted to do something very creative and pursue creativity ever since, uh, I would say, fifth grade when I saw the Star Wars trilogy for the first time. Because as I tell people before that, I thought I was going to do architecture or engineering. And then I saw Star Wars and I was like, screw that other stuff. I'm, <laughs> I'm doing that. That is my end game. And I was a little confused um, in the beginning about how to exactly pursue that. Like, I thought I wanted to do film because Star Wars are films. And then I got into video games. And so I was kind of like on the fence about that, like video games or film. And then felt like video games were more of the future because they were in, a, in an experimental sort of phase. I tried that as a programmer. It didn't work out. Ended up just getting a job in construction uh, just to support myself. And then while in construction... There was an idea I had floating around in my head that I thought would be an interesting idea for a story. So I thought I would make it a book because books are um, they're pretty simple and, I, to me, a pure medium. And um, I know Game of Thrones is getting to be very popular. And so I said, okay, well, this is based off of a book. Obviously, people are saying something here. Why don't I make this an idea, a, a book, because that way you have a lot more creative control and autonomy over your own creation. And so... I uh, started that in 2013, thought it would be done in two years, uh, nine years later. And after being turned into a series instead of a standalone book, I finally finished it. Looked for an agent for a year. That didn't work out. Decided to go self-publishing in July of last year. And it comes out now in less than a month. That's really exciting. I'm glad we got to read a pre-release version of it. Have you written the entire series already? No. So right now... I, the first draft of the second novel is done. I have some beta readers taking a look over that. I've started planning out the third and fourth novels. And the reason I'm planning those two together is because they kind of coincide, but I don't quite know where I want to cut the third and fourth one. In general, broadly, I have an idea of where the fifth through eighth novels are going to go. I even have titles for them. Some of them are temporary, but um, for the, like, I think it's just one is like a little on the on the fence right now. Mm-hmm. I, I have a broad idea of where I'm going to go with those, but I'm not going to go into detail until I'm done with the fourth one. So uh, yeah, I do have a broad game plan I am working with. That's awesome. That's a really, really impressive goal to have that many books. Oh, absolutely. And the fact that it's been such a journey for you to take the time to really cultivate characters in such a vibrant world. We're five chapters in, and one thing Anna and I just kept mentioning was how flushed out and three-dimensional these characters are and it's been so enjoyable to get to know them and what their motivations are and how they interact in your world yeah they feel very real and i like how a lot of the times we're seeing them through their actions you're not just telling them like this person is brave this person is strong you know we're seeing them all interact with each other and it's been a really interesting dive into this world so far i'm really enjoying it because i don't usually tend towards sci-fi but I'm really having a good time. Yeah, it's been so much fun. One other question I'd like to ask before we get started diving into the book is, obviously you've mentioned influence from uh, Star Wars and Mad Max. Is this your preferred wheelhouse as far as when you think sci-fi, you enjoy more dystopian type worlds and post-apocalyptic scenarios? Um, I wouldn't say I necessarily enjoy the dystopian worlds, I find some post-apocalyptic worlds are really 
striking. So, like I say, with Mad Max, like it, it's very striking. I think it's quintessential post-apocalyptic. One reason I chose post-apocalyptic was because I like space, actually. I mean, I like, I like Star Trek and Star Wars and Dune and Mass Effect and all that. So post-apocalyptic is like the exact opposite. It's the furthest away from that. So I remember always watching post-apocalyptic stories when I was younger. And I thought to myself, like, oh, I want them to get to the space thing. Like, how can they get there, get back there? I want them to go there. And so I thought, like, well, why don't I start with that and then gradually rebuild civilization? And so in doing that, it definitely shows this stark contrast between the extremes human societies can be. That element is present in the story worlds, at least this story world that I am creating. It's really cool. So I think that's a great place to start, and we can actually go and dive into the world now with Chapter 1. Alrighty. Yeah, let's do it. So right out of the gate, we are introduced to our main character, Shindo, and he is a machine mechanic, and he goes by the moniker The Machine Right. So I'm liking the nicknames that are popping up in here, too. And you have a lot of cool wordplay, which I want to get into later when it comes up a little bit more. But I was appreciating the way you were creating place names and character names and all of that. We learn that he has made all of the war machines for the Arch Lord Chief Vibran, including climbing jackhammers and chained battering rams and all sorts of scary sounding awful weapons Um, (laughs) and he has a huge scar on his face so i'm really interested in his backstory we get a little bit of knowledge about who he is later on we know that he has been kind of stuck here working for the arch lord chief for about 10 years but that's all we get i'm interested in how he got his scar i'm interested in his in his growing up and his backstory as well yes especially what's going to lead him to betray his overlord yeah because that's what he's preparing to do in this opening scene he's been making a machine that he hopes will defeat the archlord chief and then you flash us back nine months so i really liked how you gave us that little tidbit of where the story was going and then drew us back into the past and did you plan on starting your story with a flashback or did you end up doing that later on in the writing process so this um this first book has gone through so many iterations if you look at some of the earlier drafts it was really just me making something not like something i was proud of but just something it's changed so much it went from like the proto draft was it starts with him and his parents on like this farming community and then earlier drafts i have sort of grandiose prologue saying like this is the legend this that history remembers this guy as but the problem is it gives too much away and um I want you to really wonder if he's actually going to accomplish this. So it definitely wasn't. Um, I did end up starting with that. Like he is making something because critique groups have told me, like, you need to let us know who this guy is to begin with and what he's doing and what's going on. And before I wrote that scene, I did have a scene where he was making something, but a lot of people said there's nothing happening. He's just making something he's doing something but there's nothing leading towards something which oddly enough my critique group said to go with the other scene than that one but that other one didn't work out so i went with this one but i went with this one because i had this like i'm a very i don't know if you guys have noticed but i'm a very visual writer so yeah like i essentially have a camera quote unquote playing out in my head and so i just thought of this scene where like it starts off like and Maybe you guys, if you don't know anything a little bit about me, like I I love heavy metal. And so I had this scene in my head of the guys like welding and you hear this like low heavy metal music in the background and it cuts to like him making something. And then it finally just ends with a scene of like this machine he's made where he's going to do some kick ass with it and then title over to the book and then nine months earlier now you're like well what the hell's gonna happen now i gotta find out and so long-winded way of saying it wasn't the original way i started it but uh through multiple iterations of this whole novel uh this is what they i finally came up with cool it was a great hook because i remember on and i when we do a lot of our readings together we'll split the chapters and read them out loud to one another we were driving in the car and right after that First teaser moment, we're like, ooh, okay, what's happening now? I thought that was a great way to get the audience invested into what's to come. 
I feel like I set the stage also for like what type of world it is. Like he's very involved in machines and they're a huge part of the story as well. So I like how quickly you were able to paint this scene. And like you said, it is very visual and very cinematic. I could see that translating to a movie really easily. We then get introduced to Archlord Chief Vibran and the Underlord Chief Vic. And right away, uh, <laughs> I put in quotations for Vic, total bootlicker. I absolutely love their exchanges. I think their dynamic and their personalities really bounce off each other very well. It's really engaging to see Vic not quite getting what Vibran wants him to understand how that's eventually going to be a fallacy. I can see that being Vic's downfall down the line as far as overestimating his ability and not paying attention to the big picture. But that being said, there is a celebration ceremony in the scene for the abstract, which you know we're interpreting as uh, like the god of this world. There's these sacrifices being made to the abstract to appease it. Vibrid's wearing a suit that has attachments, so he looks like he has bird talons and blood spattered uh, wolf face on it. So we get this very uh, like primal visual with this group. Yeah, I like the I like the way that like the whole scene is set up. It's from Vic's perspective, so we see him watching his Archlord Chief come up, and he's like all excited about this sacrifice, and he's thinking about how one day it will be his turn to be the Archlord Chief. And the ceremony is pretty interesting. And again, you are really good at creating these scenes where we get a lot of backstory in a very quick amount of time. So we learn that Vibran is giving thanks to the abstract because he has conquered all three other city-states, uh, which are called Island, Columbia, and Cade. And he has formed the domain out of them. And in the flashback, we see that it was like the ninth year of the domain. So he's been working on creating the domain for quite some time now. I was just wondering, are the names Columbia, Cade, and Island supposed to be references to real places? Broadly. So this goes into the backstory of collapse of civilization. So I won't go into too much detail just for time. But um, essentially, these are the names of these city-states that used to exist before um, this event called the All Silence happened, which um, was pretty much just the end of civilization. They, they are based off of like actual cities loosely so i mean seer is supposed to be where vancouver was and then cade was where seattle was columbia is where portland was and then island is where victoria was okay cool I, I, yeah i start the um story in the pacific northwest even if it's not overly stated I think there was mentions of like forested areas and lots of different types of greenery and trees. So yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense now. And we just visited the Pacific Northwest for the first time yeah, this year. Awesome. So now I can visualize it. <laughs> Where'd you guys go? We went to Seattle. We didn't get to go to a huge amount of spaces, but yeah, that was our first time on the West Coast. I loved it. Yeah, I've been through Seattle a bunch of times. Mm. Awesome. One thing I did want to expand upon, since you did bring it up with the uh, the great silencing, we were going over theories amongst ourselves, and we were considering the possibility of that being a, a solar flare that temporarily disabled like all of technology on the planet. Uh, I don't know if I want to go into too much detail, <laughs> just because like okay. in the series, they're going to find out, like, oh, this is what it was, and it does have weight in terms of the decisions they have to make going forward. But I do, uh, okay, I'll tell you what I tell everyone else. So I say the All Silence was this event that bathed the skies in red, green, and blue hues and fried all electrical systems across the planet. If people are smart enough, they can figure out what that is. But I won't give away too much right now. But if you're saying solar flare, I will say you are along the lines of what it is. Oh, I like that it's based on some kind of real possible scientific event. Interesting, interesting. Back to our three sacrifices into the void. That is the altar of the abstract. Uh, We get uh, sacrifices of growing importance. First is a, a goat that is thrown in. Then one of the wolves that protect and serve part of this group 
you know, a loyal servant of them is gutted and thrown in. And then we have uh, Zephyr, which is the last other Lord Chief that opposed them. So, you know, we have this grand ceremony really uplifting the importance that is the abstract and how important it is to appease it. I guess our question from viewing the scene was that, you know, religion is a tough thing to put into a fantasy or sci-fi work. Was there kind of like a catalyst point for you that came up with this idea or was this a theme you had early on in your draft ideas? I, I can't remember when I introduced the abstract. I think it's been around since draft number two. Obviously, in a post-apocalyptic world, religion's going to be important. You don't really typically think science when you think post-apocalyptic. So in particular with the abstract, uh, how I came up with it was because in large cosmopolitan cities, there tend to be a plethora of religions. And after kind of looking at them all for a while, you kind of realize that they all hint at the same thing or like there's also the same idea there. And even so far, I said to say, there are multiple different definitions of this abstract idea. And so that's how I come up with the abstract. It's just like this nice. sort of ethereal root of this tree of religions that just come about it. And as an example, you do see a lot of monotheistic religions, but even like the Aztec religion, they did believe that many of the gods were just a manifestation or different manifestations of this one underlying force. I think you see the same with Hinduism, although I'm not quite sure about that. But I mean, like all these religions across the planet come about, they're all, they got so much in common. They're all kind of hinting at the same idea. And so, yeah, all of that did uh, filter into my head and that's how I came up with it. Yeah, it's really cool. I enjoy the fact that there's an air of mystery to it. It has its own force that governs this world. But I also like that. Vibrant is using it to justify the things he's done, saying that it chose him to be the Arch Lord Chief, which is something that we've seen throughout history so many times, monarchs saying they're divinely chosen to lead, and how that can play out in so many different ways. You know, in terms of like British monarchy, it means that they don't, <laughs> you know, they don't branch out their uh, family tree that far because they were trying to keep themselves contained. And other times it allows the leaders to do certain types of actions that people might find abhorrent or evil but they say you know the gods have let me do it so i like that this is playing into the story in a very concrete way that's guiding vibrant's actions or after the ceremony vic <laughs> i just like how he interacts with vibrant he, you know tells him the speech was awesome he sucks up to him a little bit but they get along really well and you can tell that they both want success from the relationship they want Vic to learn and become the successor. So I like to see how he's learning and kind of playing off the Archlord Chief. But once they have their little debrief, I guess, they go and meet all the other Lord Chiefs. So we are introduced to a few other characters. Yes. Um, they're in this big hall or tent and they're having a big celebration. There's tons of food and beer and wine and ale. So it almost reminded me of like Viking feasting a little bit, which I thought was pretty cool. And we are introduced to the three other Lord Chiefs. So we have Lord Chief Tersona, and she's the only female Lord Chief. Uh, her husband was killed, and then she gave her city Cade over to the Arch Lord Chief. And then we have Arch Lord Chiefs Lan and Norsen, who they're just a little bit more background characters right now because we have a little bit more conflict with Tersona moving forward. Yes. And we also have the character Engine, who is a mercenary from the uh, Rush Tracers. He's there and he's angry because he constantly craves more battle and conflict. And there's a state of momentary peace. But Vibran is very tactic where he can appease Engine by saying, well, there's always going to be another conflict. I will make sure to have you hired as guards for the city-state. So it allows him to kind of keep him close by and use him as a weapon still for their cause. Yeah, we can see a lot of the political angling and how Vibrant is smart to manipulate the people into positions around him that are beneficial to himself. But we also get to see like a bigger slice of society here. People are battle scarred, there's tattoos, there's piercings. It's very like rough and dystopian. So I can see where you pulled from a little bit of inspiration of things like Mad Max. But how did you like personally come up with this world and culture and like decide to put your story 
into it? So one of my biggest problems in the beginning was I tended to like gravitate towards like medieval village, essentially, especially with this scene, with the celebration, I kind of had like those little like bardic lutes in my head initially. And I'm like, well, no, Nathan, it's not medieval fantasy. It's post-apocalyptic. <laughs> in line with the whole like sort of heavy metal theme in my background. One of the other things I thought I'd introduce was, um, I mean, obviously people that have tattoos and, and piercings are going to come across as a little bit more rough. I also had, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, these sort of people that do odd body transformations. And I, I think it's body, I don't want to say body dysmorphia, but like, okay. So an example is those people that like put hooks on their back and then hang from cages by their skin, like, like that sort of like, sort of outlandish nature. Yeah, I swear to God, after this podcast, I'm going to come up with the word and I'm going to be like, damn it, why didn't I use that one? Yeah, it's not modification uh, or exhibition. Oh, also, I would say like, I mean, I mean, even people that are like in this say like BDSM, like that sort of like extreme sort of behavior. And so I said, okay, well, I mean, that is quite striking. And I do like to be striking when I write my novels. And so I said, well, that, that, that's in line. Just put that in. And that's that's why that's there. Awesome. I know there's like a word for what you're describing. I just can't think of it. We're all going to come up with it after this podcast. And then the next <laughs> episode, we're going to be like, that's what we all meant. Yeah. We'll regroup when we think of it. <laughs> Post notes. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the world is full of all these like crazy characters. Uh, Vic ends up leaving the the meeting or this like celebratory dinner i guess you could call it he ends up going to a crowd of dancers and then brings a woman back to his tent so we can see that he's got power i think even he has like an internal monologue moment where he says like who would refuse a night with someone of his stature so he thinks highly of himself for sure and obviously other people recognize his position in the world as well yes and then we get a shift change we're back to shindo's perspective and he's walking through a tenement to deliver an invention. And at this time, he thinks about the world, how it used to be different, how society withered in the four laps, which I love, like, before the col- collapse, that, like, compounding word structure there. And then the all silence, which, you know, we had previously mentioned may or may not be a solar flare or <laughs> a natural event. That was a moment where all technology stopped working and plunged society into chaos. He notices evidence of generators and small types of wind turbines and water systems because the electrical grid is unreliable. And just as a side commentary to this, I found that fascinating because when you have a world that the infrastructure has collapsed like this, to see alternative uses and reliance on multiple sources of power to generate, whether it's solar, wind, or different types of accessory technology to keep people alive. I thought that was very creative because you have to compensate somehow. That being said, with these alternative energy sources, was this something that you knew was going to be kind of in the background with this world since a lot of the infrastructure had collapsed? Not initially, but as I developed my world and figured out what I wanted to do, I always think about like, well, what's striking? What's like post-apocalyptic? What really kind of sits with you once you see it, right? So I do that, but also I have commentary sort of on our current world and our sustainable solutions. And I had this whole idea that there's a lot of legacy relics that are still around from these sustainable solutions that they kind of tried to like get going before the society collapsed, but it was a little, it was too little too late. And so... There were some basic concepts I, I did come up with. And so, like, the one with, like, a, a methane generator where you could just take, like, literally poo because, and just use it as the gases go off, use it as, like, a, if anything, just as a, a heat source in the cold winters. And I think sometimes on farms, if the farmer can do it, they'll have, like, a, some farms, they'll just take, like, the cow patties and put it in this area. And then as the methane goes off, it inflates and they just have, like, a source of, energy and that's uh yeah one little simple example and then there's another example of local gardens that you just grow in your like patio or in like a communal 
for like an apartment building, like just sort of like a communal garden that everybody contributes to just so they don't have to rely on food that's shipped from away and might be a little bit more expensive. So yeah, those are some of the elements that uh, people will be saying if they decide to read my novel. I like that you try to think about like what is striking and what stands out for your world and what will fit into it instead of just saying like, what do I think is cool? What do I think would make like a fun and interesting fantasy or sci-fi novel? Like it feels very deliberate and you can see how well it plays out with the world you have built is very cohesive feeling and very immersive. So Shindo actually goes to meet this boy tate who he used to see dancing in the streets in the markets but then one day his arm was missing and tate was begging instead of dancing so again we're getting glimpses into how harsh the world can be and how difficult it is but shindo is actually like sort of this shining beacon of hope in the world like he has all these really good ideas about how to help people so he actually builds this boy a prosthetic arm he's using his mechanical skills for good which i think is interesting considering he's been conscripted to work to build the war machines so i think he's carrying a lot of guilt as a character and he helps him out but throughout the whole fitting shindo is very awkward socially he's got these internal monologues where he says he's not quite sure how to react to people yeah sometimes (laughs) the social cues are misunderstood or misinterpreted yeah at first i was wondering if he was a robot and then i was wondering if he might have a head injury from when he got his scar but the more we see him interact with people i think he might just be socially awkward you know he admits that he doesn't know how to talk to people sometimes or how to react and as a kid i was extraordinarily shy and i had like debilitating social anxiety so i know exactly how this feels i had to work really really hard to grow out of that as an adult so sometimes when he's like i don't know what to say i'm like yeah i understand but i like that you've made your main character not like a not like a mary sue character i guess is kind of the term people use but like someone who's good at everything and everyone loves and is super charismatic and awesome like i like that we're getting someone who doesn't fit in with society really well and i like that you took that perspective and I, I'm trying to ask questions so you don't have to give off like things that are going to come up later. But I guess, is there like a particular reason why you have chosen Shindo as your main character? Yeah, I'm going to have to give a bit of personal information about this. So um, I think we've all had the fantasy of if I ran the world, what would I do? And so in part, this is me in the story. I'm saying, what would I do? I mean, that's how it initially started. But as um, things became a little less naive and more shades of gray as I wrote the novel, I realized that things aren't so straightforward when you're trying to make the world a better place. So the reason I made him this awkward was because, again, I said it's sort of like me in there. And I found out in my early 20s, although I haven't had an official diagnosis, I found out that I was high-functioning autistic. If if anything, I'm probably on the milder end, but I've had a lot of people tell me like, oh, yeah, it's there. But I still like this idea of an unconventional person who sees things a little differently, thinks a little differently, and that actually lends itself to improving society or making the world a lot more a richer place. I think he's an awesome character. I really like where his head's at a lot of the time. And I, as we see later, I like these ideas he has where he's like, oh, I'll just go around and help people and fix things. And then Nudru, who's a character we meet in a minute, uh, and his wife ask him some more questions about like the logistics of that, and I like to see him navigate those situations. So I think he's an awesome main character. And I think it also really articulates how what is planned versus reality in life. You know, at times we expect things to be clean cut and straightforward, and life is messy and complicated and challenging, and it's very refreshing to get the perspective of a protagonist that has his own difficulties with relationships and connections and communicating at times, but has a good heart and has wonderful motivation. So I think it's really just an awesome perspective to have for this story. Speaking of Nadru, we get to meet him now, actually. Yes. So Shindo, after he finishes putting the prosthetic on Tate, and Tate actually gets this awesome new arm that he can now go live his life with so we get to see how well shindo's inventions do work he goes to the factory owned by nidru and asks him to set it all up to the manufacturer a bunch of different kinds of prosthetics so even though tate's was sort of like a trial run it's the impetus for him to build a lot more that can help a lot of people 
Uh, and this is such a dangerous prospect because, again, being beholden to Vibran and using the factory specifically for his needs, not to go over budget, to go behind his back and do something that's going to benefit the population as a whole is dangerous because of repercussions. He's already has scars to prove like how volatile and vicious Vibran can be. So to go against his orders is tr- going to affect more than just Shindo. And Nedru knows this. He explains it. And he kind of sees through Shindo's facade in the beginning. I love the line where he's saying like, oh, you know, we can use these prosthetics for, you know, fallen soldiers and, you know, help bolster the ranks and Nedru's not buying it. And so ultimately good intentions prevail. He does agree to help Shindo in this endeavor, but they really have to be careful. Shindo says he'll take all the blame and like try to protect Nedru. If this does end up blowing up in their faces, he'll say, you know, I Shindo told Nedru that the Archlord chief ordered these. So He's trying to protect everyone. So you can see he's trying really, really hard to do good. Unfortunately, though, it's like that fallacy in perspective sometimes where Shindo would be like, oh, no, it's all my fault. And not realizing everyone else would be to blame as well. And they'd be collateral damage if things get discovered. So it's just a bad case of good intentions sometimes. Yeah, I've got sweaty hands about this <laughs> this plan. I'm nervous for how it's going to go out because obviously... Vibran will notice eventually that there's all these prosthetics out in the world, so we'll see how this plays out for Shindo, but he's walking on very thin ice at this moment. So we get to chapter two. It's only one day later than chapter one, so we haven't had another time jump. And Vic and Vibran are in a convoy that's leaving the ceremonies, and they're all driving in, like, tanks and these big armored vehicles. So, again, just kind of playing into how much of, like, a warlord he has become and this type of world he set up yes and so we get more of these abbreviation split words that i'm enjoying vibrant smoking navis so i'm assuming a playoff of cannabis i just think that's a really fun little tidbit for this world that because it's post-apocalyptic and knowledge gets lost over time or just your own creativity shining through i'm just enjoying these abbreviation or variants on common words and they they kind of poke out to me as little easter eggs and i'm having fun just finding them as i read as we continue on though vibrant uh begins to question vic about different scenarios and how he would act as a leader and i think this is a great form of mentoring and coaching but unfortunately vic keeps missing the answers he's kind of approaching it as if it was supposed to be something to be memorized and he's not critically thinking and this is where vibrant is getting a little frustrated with vic because scenarios are always going to be different and it's not like a regurgitated fact you like can react to in life you need to be able to have like full understanding but there are some ground rules that are relayed with this conversation and the first one is don't hesitate you know if you're gonna be as a warlord you have to be decisive and aggressive one of the scenarios he asks vic you know what would he do if he stole from him and vic again good intentions but isn't seeing the big picture he was like you know i'd hunt him down until it didn't matter anymore and that's not the point vibrant wants him to realize like You have to be ruthless. You have to be patient. You got to play the long game. And so he's hoping in time Vic will understand more and kind of become the leader he hopes he will be. But as they're having this conversation, the convoy gets attacked. I thought something that you slipped in was kind of interesting. Vic almost seems a little bit nervous. He's talking about how he never backs down from a fight and he loves like battles. But then as soon as he's faced with this thing where they're getting ambushed... He panics a little bit and he's like, oh, last time we were in a battle, I wasn't this close to the action. So I'm wondering if he's kind of talking a bigger talk than maybe he actually has the experience for, which I think is kind of a fun character to play around with. Right. Like what would happen if he doesn't have the advantage, his back's against the wall? Like what is his, what's at his core? You know what I mean? 
I don't know. He seems like an unpredictable character, which is why he's really intriguing to me. Like, sometimes he's trying really, really hard to learn from Vibron, but then other times he seems like he wants to just, like, run around and fight. So I'm interested to see when he's faced with being a leader how it's going to play out. Are your characters based on people you know, or are they just kind of inventions of your own? So it, it depends on the character. So these, like, main characters aren't actually... Not anybody I personally know. I tend to tend to be based on like I would say historical figures. So I mean, obviously with Fiber Mag, right? You got to think about like any sort of dictator. So like you know, like obviously Hitler is the one that comes to mind. But then there's like Nero, and then there's um, uh, I, I can only think of 20th century examples right now. So like Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein, and so there's that. And then like there's a character I introduced later on who, and she's based off of like sort of famous generals so i just i took a lot of the names and sort of like played around with the letters to come up with a name so like with her she's coming up i played it around with um i think like julius caesar salal dean general Patton, to come up with the characters and then if there's like minor characters where like i just need to have somebody and i need to have them described somewhat it's usually so many people are like can i be in your novel and so it's like you can be a side <laughs> character so I'll just be like, Captain Dang, it was, and what does he look like? Well, he looks like my buddy. And so what personality traits does he have? Well, what would my buddy be like in this world? And so, yeah, yeah, it does depend on, I would say, the, the tier of character. That's cool. That's definitely dangerous to put people into your book, but I like that you're putting them in there. Mm-hmm. So as this convoy gets attacked... They decimate this force pretty quickly. I mean, you know, they are in a, can uh, in a tank, and they have a pretty well-armed force. Unfortunately, there's only one person remaining once the confrontation's concluded, and before she has an opportunity to take her life, they capture her and take her prisoner to interrogate her. Yeah, we so. see her come up again in a later chapter. Mm -hmm. There's a group out there that is very much against uh, Vibrant... You know, they're willing to put their life on the line to make sure he's taken out. So it is definitely like either freedom fighters or another faction at play. So things are getting a little messy. Yeah, the politics aren't like, oh, we have one ruler now and he's in charge and everyone's right. cool it is with it. Definitely not total dominance, that's for sure. But again, I like that you switch up character perspectives even mid chapter. So we jump to Shindo again. It uh, keeps it really fun that each scene is very action packed. So we leave the convoy, we're back with Sh Shindo, and he is meeting Kylan, who's an older woman from his own hometown, which is only a couple of hours away, but we find out that he hasn't been back there to see his parents or been home in nine or ten years, so it seems like the entire time he's been working for Vibran, he has been stuck here at their headquarters, which they call the Wolf's Den. Yeah, he's definitely on a short leash, unfortunately. Yeah. Kylan's a scrapper. She's got bad news. She tells Shindo that his mom is sick and also that his dad was in an accident and got crushed when they were trying to get some iron bars for scrapping. So both of his parents are in bad shape. Shindo unfortunately can't go see them because of the way that Vibran has his eyes on him. And I feel bad because he's getting all these pressure from different sides. You know, he's got this pressure to go home He's got this pressure to stay, and then he's also got the pressure of his own secret project that he's working on. So we can already see how much of a corner he's like got himself into in this world. And I, I love the perspective he has as the chapter's ending of like, Kylan's warning him like, you should come home soon because unfortunately maybe the last chance you get to see your family all together. Shindo is convincing himself, like, they're going to be okay, they have to be okay, I have work to do, and it's just going to be the way it is. And again, it's that kind of skewed perspective where it's not wrong, but it might not be the most sound perspective, but unfortunately he has no other choice but to keep pushing forward. I have a prediction that at least one of his parents is going to die, and then... It's going to really push him further into his plans to defeat Vibram because he, he's going to think about, like, he doesn't want bad things to befall anyone because he is very altruistic. And so, like, the death of a parent 
it's going to make him think about like other people dying and how he's going to push harder to make the world a better place. It definitely could be a catalyst point. I think it's going to be a big catalyst point for him. So chapter three opens with Nadru and he's back at his factory. He had this little moment. It was just like a quiet little moment in the morning. And he said, get there before the sun comes up. So you are fully awake before the real work begins. Is this like your own personal mantra? (laughs) It is a bit of, I guess you could say me in him. But I've also, because I worked in construction for a while. There was also another guy I met who said, even though they start work at seven, he gets there at around like six, six fifteen, and he said, "I can't just get here and go. I gotta have my coffee, read my newspaper." I was sort of like that. I would get there early, not like that early, but just early, so that it wasn't like immediately go. You just kind of like, I guess, absorb the essence of the site into you, so then you're prepared to go. And so I know there are people like that. And so I said, like, especially um, as a foreman, you've got to be there early and you have a lot more responsibility it does make sense that you're getting there a little earlier all those factors were the reason i decided to add that bit of information i feel like we definitely noticed it because we're usually up i mean we're both at work by seven so yeah we were like oh yeah we can totally see this (laughs) 10 hour days boo yeah yeah They're horrible. Uh, I get to work for like, my work days at 7, I usually get there for 6.45, and I work in an operating room, so it's always a moment I get, and I'm like, hit the ground running. So, there is a a romance to like, the idea of like, having a moment to like, get yourself together, have that sip of coffee, get in a good headspace before diving right in. Yeah. <sighs> but, as Nedru is... Working on site in the factory, he hears, you know, banging and clanging, and at first you think somebody broke in because it's so early and he's on guard. He it just... also seems like there'd be a lot of valuable stuff oh, yeah. we're stealing in this factory. So many tools and resources, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. He discovers that Shindo, and he'd been working all night on a safety feature for the factory. This is a really interesting perspective for Shindo's personality again, you know. He hasn't been sleeping because he's nervous about the safety feature, but I think it's more of an underlying pressure of his anxiety and stress, you know, trying to keep busy and keep his mind off, you know, the secret plot, his family, his short leash to Vibran, and it's all manifesting in him having to keep busy. And he even says after doing this type of labor all night, he's he earned the right to rest and go to sleep, where... It's his justification of taking it easy, even though he has so much internal and external pressures on him. Yeah, he's very hard on himself. He's an interesting... Like, he's got so many things he wants to do, and it seems like he's not satisfied ever with, like, what he's accomplished. And then we actually get to see in action Shindo's safety feature work, because Nadru realizes that, you know, the factory feels almost the same every day, He's having these moments where he's thinking about how the Lord Chief could shut them down at any moment, so he wants to be done with this secret project as soon as possible. The factory's getting going, but the machine's not starting. There's something going on, so he actually goes down into the area that Shindo had fixed up, and people were greasing parts inside the machine, the same time that someone was trying to turn it on up above. We see exactly how important Shindo's actions were there, because otherwise those people would have been crushed. Something that's pretty helpful for the plot, too, is the fact that without this safety feature, there would have been a big incident at the factory, which potentially could have attracted the attention of Archlord Chief Vibran and made him come look at what they're doing, which obviously they don't want him to do because (laughs) they're spending his money on a project that's not his. So it was like triple helpful in the terms that like it saved those people's lives. It kept them under the radar And we can see how important safety is to Shindo, because obviously nobody wants to have a machine accident that's super dangerous. Yeah. And then we get a shift change again. So we are back with the woman that Vibran and Vic took prisoner from that little group of of freedom fighters. We find out her name is Glyna. She's captured. She's been tortured, uh, possibly assaulted. And now that Vibran has finished his round of torture interrogation, Vic is to go in and play good cop, so to speak. 
And, you know, he's doing a lot of the textbook interrogation methods you would see on, like, movies and TVs for, like, good cop. Like, oh, you know, you want something to eat? Tell me about yourself. He's trying to disarm her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she she's smart. She's crafty. She hasn't broken yet. And she's putting up a good front. However, when it comes down to it, he asks her what she wants, it slips. She wants Vibrant's head on, you know, a spike outside the city of Cade. And she tries to, like, backtrack really quick and make, or any other city-state. So they're starting to close in on it. They're like, okay, well, this is where you're from. Who sent you? You know, was it Lord Chief Trisona? She mentions that it ends up being her second in command, uh, Justin. And, you know, they, Vic and Viber now have a place to branch off of and have a plan of what to do next. But they're not done with her. They bring her up to the courtyard and keep threatening her with a chain battering ram. Ugh. How do you come up with the ideas for these machines? Because they are intense. Yes. So um, the chain battering ram is actually based off of something called a flail tank from the 1940s. And it was an anti-demining tank. Um, I even saw something more recently, which is, I think it's the same concept. that's called the aardvark. And it's these like chains on these weights on the chains. And they spin it up and it goes forward. And then it like... As it picks up a mine, it throws it out, and the mine explodes. And so, oh wow! But when I can't come up with something, I'm like, "What's an interesting machine?" Oh, the flail tank. Uh, I'll just like that looks pretty gnarly, so I use that. That is, yeah. We just looked up a picture of it. That's crazy. I've never heard of that before. Yeah, I awesome. like how much you're pulling from history. I'm an archaeologist, so I like, you know. I'm not into 20th century history as much, but I love, like, pulling real things and bringing them into a story. I think it gives it so much, like, weight and authenticity. They go all in with the chain battering ram. Oh, it's vicious. Yeah, they've got her pinned against a wall. The chains are coming at her, like, like just barely missing her face as they're trying to question her and get her to finally fold and reveal who hired her, even though she keeps insisting it was this guy, Justin. So they just let her get chewed up by the machine. Like, her body is pulp at the end of this. Like, there is nothing left. Again, the brutality of these people. Yeah, we finally get to see it in action. Like, we know that they are brutal because they're in these positions and they've conquered. But they're brutal on a personal level, too. It's not, like, only on the battlefield. In the aftermath of this, again, we have Vibrant asking Vic what he would do. And I like how he's constantly questioning him and training him and trying to make him think about what he would do as a leader. And Vic's on the money on this one. And, you know, I tend to put myself in Vic's shoes a lot when these questions do come up. And I think it was a smart idea to, like, pull up an emergency meeting with all the Lord War Chiefs and have all their seconds attend as well to you know, start this inquisition and call out and, you know, essentially get to the bottom of things, so. But they decide to be more intense. Yeah, they end up gearing up and heading out towards Kane with all of their gear to confront uh, Trisona. Yep, so even though Glyna had said it was Yustin, they're really still convinced that Trisona is trying to be crafty and do them in, so they are going all out and the chapter ends with them saying that so you know you left us off on this good cliffhanger about what they're going to be doing to get revenge here and in the next chapter we see them already preparing to go on this huge convoy they're getting in all their tanks they're getting all the warriors ready and they are i think you said it's like a 200 kilometer drive to the city so they just beeline over there and when they get to the gates I like that you mentioned people are just going about their regular day, too. Like, there's regular traffic in the roads because people are just living their lives. Um, And I thought that was a fun detail you'd slipped in. Because it would be so startling to just be trying to, you know, like, run your errands and then have tanks roll up on you. But when they get there, they call for Chisona to come out and meet him or else they're going to start shelling the city. So he is direct and confrontational, for sure. Oh, yeah. I'm still, even after reading the section, trying to decide her motivations because she's such a crafty character. You know, 
She shows up alone and confused. She's trying very hard to be brave and, you know, anyone will be intimidated and worried in this situation. You know, Vibrant explains that he can't trust her because whether she was behind the attack or not. She needs to be able to control the people underneath her. Yes. So he thinks that she's a weak leader and something needs to be done about this. He gives her one hour to locate and bring forward uh, Justin. Otherwise, she's done too. But they actually get him there within the hour. Tersona sends all her guards out. Justin shows up beaten and chained. And the Archlord Chief gets right in his face and says he's going to have his fun with Justin. And I really like the intimidating dialogue you have been writing. It feels very like scary in the moment like i was nervous for all the characters in the situation because he seems like he's just sort of a wild card how do you go about writing your dialogues i know that that's something that authors either say they really really love or really really hate well in just in terms of writing in general i used to be like so dorothy parker has this quote of i hate writing i love having written and i, I used to be like that but over time i've actually gotten a little less like that i do like just sitting down and having uh, my time now specifically with the dialogue this this came about when i was watching around the third season again of game of thrones and people really loved that show and i was like what's the appeal of this i really got to pay attention to this if i want people to gravitate towards my stories and so i noticed that a lot of the dialogue had what i call little hints of wisdom i mean there's a part where i think very says why does nobody trust the eunuch and it's like oh that's a little bit of interesting wisdom like I don't have attraction to like, you know, women, sex isn't my motivation. So I can't get like deceived or manipulated. And so that's how I go about with my um, dialogue is I make sure that not if it's not every line, most of the lines, like there's a little hint of wisdom, like they're saying something, but there's also something else being said beneath it, that if you're paying attention, it's, you can kind of get it because it's the implication is there, even if it's a little subtle. And so, and it's not like it's easy for me to write the dialogue. I mean, I have a lot of times in which I write a line and then it's not like until five minutes later, I figure out what he can say. Yeah, that is the general process of how I do it. I do manage to, in the end, stitch it all together and make it flow, um, flow well. I think that's awesome because a lot of the conversations, especially the dynamic, again, between vibrant and Vic it's like he's trying to teach him these really good pieces of wisdom that he has gathered by being a leader whether or not I think they're necessarily like good leadership tactics always because you know he's a war leader but he has these tidbits and sometimes Vic gets them and sometimes Vic doesn't and I like to see which ones go over his head and which ones don't and I think that makes for really awesome dialogue because your conversations have more going on thematically about like what's happening in your plot than just people communicating for the sake of communicating or relaying information to one another. Yes, and within the last part of this section, he being vibrant takes Tersona with him because she's no longer trustworthy. And again, we get a time jump of 87 days later. So... We don't quite know what happens to Tersona because it's so ominous that she just has to go with them. She may as well be with the Void. She might be <laughs> surviving. We're going to have to wait and see. Yeah, but the uh, the unity of his all his city-states isn't quite, I think, as strong as he was expecting it to be. So I think that's an interesting underplot that's happening as well with the politics. Yes. Um, but with the time jump, we do get Shindo and Najiru at the factory 87 days later, like Sam said. And it actually seems like everything's going really well with their prosthetics project. They say, you know, they had these bumps in the road. It was tough to figure out all the logistics, but it all worked out in the end. So I think that I was worried that they were going to get found out early on into the project, but it seems like things are going pretty well so far. So I'm glad for them. Yeah, they're definitely flying under the radar at the moment. Yeah, but they... There's a moment where Nadru thinks that this might be their last project because of the fact that war machines aren't going to be needed anymore. So they discuss what they'd like to do next. And this is where we get more of Shindo's background and his motivation. So at first he says, I'll make the factory safer. 
Now, Drew says, there's probably not a need to do that. You've put so many safety features in now. It might be a bit overkill. So then Shindo says he would go around the city and fix machines and make them safe for everyone and actually cover the expenses out of his own pocket. So he's extremely altruistic, and I really like that about his character. He's not wishing for world domination or to be, you know, I want to be the new Archlord Chief or anything. He has a really simple wish, which is something I think that humans have wished for the entirety of humanity, which is like peace and safety. And I think that's awesome. Like it's a it's a very straightforward goal, but for some reason humans just can't quite seem to ever like get there. So I see exactly why he wants to do these things. And as a reward for all of his work, Nadru wants to invite Shindo over for dinner. Not only because I think how much work he's put into the factory, but also we realize that Shindo is all alone. You know, he doesn't have any kind of romantic partner and his parents he hasn't been able to see in over ten years. So he gets invited to dinner. Yes. And this is a cute little tidbit. Like, I'm a mush. I love love. So uh, one thing I love that Nedru immediately says is how much he cares about his wife and loves her. And it's nice to see, like, a healthy relationship in a dystopian world that although, you know, so much is going wrong, love and perseverance and kindness can still exist in a place like this. You know, Shindo is a little apprehensive about the invitation about coming to dinner, but ultimately he does agree. I think he's just apprehensive because he's just so used to being solitary outside of his work. He that... also talks about like how he has to, he lives within the wolf's den, you know. Yeah. He goes home at the end of every day and all of the warriors are there and I think he feels kind of beholden to that routine yeah he definitely would be a character that thrives on his structure so as we get into chapter five shindo attends dinner at nedru's and emgan's house it's a modest but nice home they do have some very nice accoutrement to their uh home they do have a biofuel generator they were able to afford beef for dinner so they do okay financially in this world. They're 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 hanging on. Shindo's a little awkward when he first gets there, but they eventually settle in and he gets an opportunity to kind of open up about himself and like what his aspirations are and who he is. And again, we get to see this altruism shine through of him wanting to make the city in the world a better place, but to start, he needs to improve on himself, which I just loved. I think ultimately, no matter what stage you are in life, there's always room for self-improvement and fulfillment. And it's just nice to kind of have him become self-aware in this moment and realize that although he may have unique qualities, his heart's in the right place and he just wants to continue to improve. I think it's good, too, because he gets a moment where he's telling them all about these ideas and they have realistic questions about the implementation of them. And that's when he starts to realize he needs to work on himself, which I'm not sure if that's really like the solution here. But I think it was more like how he's going to present his ideas in ways that people are going to really warm to them. So I like the dynamic and the friendship that's developing between the three of them. And you have this little part where they're talking about the road to Gress, which I'm assuming is like the road to progress. Yes. I don't want to give away too much of where the... Although it is already mentioned in the scene, I don't want to give away too much of the backstory to that saying. But um, it, yeah, it's this idea of um, we're all just constantly working on ourselves and trying to improve ourselves and be a lot better than the person we were yesterday. And so that's some... Um, all of that is said in that just in just that one little saying. I like that you put like again we had talked earlier about like the words and the phrases that you had put into the world, but I like that you've also got like sayings. Like it, it makes the world feel very realized again. You know, it's this is kind of the way people do talk to each other, and so in this conversation, even though Shindo feels like he is sort of an awkward conversationalist, like this is a very realistic conversation, and you can see their friendship really starting to like take a spark in this moment and they even offer for Shino to come over whenever he wants to just to like talk and hang out so I like that he's not alone anymore 
Yeah, it's definitely the beginnings of a, a community. And he feels good, too. Like, he, he finishes up his dinner and walks back to the wolf's den, feeling pretty good about himself and his plans, not only to work on himself, but also to work on fixing the city and, like, bringing good things to everyone around him. But also at the wolf's den is Vic. And we get a little bit more as he walks through the wolf's den and navigates it. You paint these awesome pictures like literal pictures there's all these murals around but we also get to see what is in the wolf's den for accommodations so he's in a sauna he mentions a steam room there's like a room that's full of food there's a room that's full of drink uh and he's on his way to a harem so there's not like upper class but i guess like plentiful everything here which compared to what we just saw with shindo at nudru's house like, even though he owns a factory and he should be pretty well off, like, they don't have the nicest stuff or the nicest house. So we can start to see how the the wolf's den is collecting up all the resources and hogging it for themselves. And then you put in these literal murals talking about the history of the world and how the first Lord Chief ever raised up the working class and burned the elites. And I like how you've built this whole cycle of foreshadow and potential, like, repeating itself as, you know, now these people here are acting like the elites. So I guess, again, I'm not sure if you can reveal too much because I don't want you to give away, like, big history parts of your world, but you clearly, like, put a lot of thought into the history and the culture. So when you were writing this and brainstorming, did you build a ton of world-building stuff at the beginning, or did a lot of these ideas come along over multiple drafts? Yeah, a lot of them came to me over multiple drafts. I uh, had to come up with how does the city-state ultimately fall and get ruled by these warlords. And so I may have already hinted at it in the beginning. Him and like the Lord Chiefs in general and the Rust Razors have a common root people. And so they're at a certain point between the All Silence and when the story starts, they branched off. And so I do hint that they came from the interior and took over. And um, all of that is present in the mural. So I did have to spend some time saying, well, how exactly does that work? How does it happen? How do they, why do they, how does that relationship between the interior people and the city state look like before the all silence? Like what's happening between now and uh, the all silence and then everything after the all silence? Like how does the relationship change once the Lord Chiefs are in power of these city states and they continue about their business? Whereas there's people in the interior that um are still doing their thing as they've always done. Interesting. Mm. I'm interested to see if they go into the interior at some point and interact with other cultures. Oh, okay. Mm. I'm excited. I'm very excited. <laughs> so Vic is passing all of this history on the walls as he's going to visit Vibrand while he's in his harem. So again, everything is a test for Vic. The distractions of the location are specifically a test for his own focus. Yeah. So as they're there, they're talking. Obviously, it's full of naked women. I think there's one naked man in there. And Vic is very distracted, but he's trying really hard to focus. Yeah. I think he's just not... I don't know how old he is, but I'm picturing him as just like maybe early 20s. Like he's not 100% matured yet. And he's trying really hard. Yeah, that, that's that's right. He's um no older than 25 at this point. Okay, perfect. That is exactly what I pictured. So while he's in there, Vibrant's asking him how he would clean up the mess. And I'm referring to like the mess with the city-state and the Tersona and Yustin and all of like everything that had happened with that sort of deviation from their power. So Vic again answers that they should have destroyed Cade. And this isn't quite the answer that Vibrant is looking for. So again, he's he's like trying really hard to have the right answers, but he's never quite there. And I don't know. I'm interested to see. I have a prediction that he might actually die at some point in this book, Vic is, or he's either going to have to suddenly become Lord Chief and he's not going to be fully equipped yet. And I'm I'm very divided on how he's going to go, but I like that he's 
not living up to the standards that the Archlord Chief should have. Yeah. At some point, Vic suggests another sacrifice to the abstract, and Vibrant looks around at the girls at his harem, and he says, it's a shame. So maybe some foreshadowing that one of them are going to be sacrificed to the abstract. Vibrant also declares towards the end of the section that he's going to push Shindo to make a new, scarier machine to keep their enemies intimidated and in line. So now, again, the pressure is going to be on for Shindo and the expectations to deliver. It's really hard for Shindo. He's trying to do things to help people and now to be requested to build an even worse war machine that will cause death, destruction, and harm to people directly contradicts like his core values. And we'll have to see what's going to play out with that section of events. Yeah, so I think that was an awesome first five chapters. That's as far as we've read, because we like to be able to make predictions. So obviously we're seeing, like Sam said, all of the pressure coming down on Shindo. But I think based on that little opening scene that you gave us, the machine that Shindo is going to end up creating under this new order is the one that he's going to kill or try to kill Archlord Chief Vibrin with. So... I think that'll be interesting to see what actually kind of machine he creates. Again, I made my predictions that Vic is either going to die or become Archlord Chief. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> sure. So I like that I really don't know what the fate of our characters is. Um, it keeps me really interested in the plot and what's going to happen to them. But I think also we're going to start to see more city-states start to turn against them. Tersonos was the first, but potential predictions that that's not going to be the only one. Yeah. I also don't think we're done with Trisona yet. I think she's in a really tough position, but I really enjoy how crafty she is. She knows how to play the game, keep her head down, try to keep herself out of the crosshairs, even though at this time, Vibrant is not happy with her. I think she illustrates how intriguing and unpredictable, quote unquote, like, court politics can be mm. so i really enjoy her place within this story i don't know if any of those are right you have a very good poker face so <laughs> you might be laughing at us later who knows we'll see how accurate we are just just gotta read the story to find out <laughs> oh yeah we will definitely so i think our next set of chapters is gonna be six through ten we'll see if any of our predictions come true and just to wrap up our episode, did you want to give everyone like your social media accounts and everything where they can find information about your books? Yes. You can usually find all my social media just simply off my website, www.nathanogloff.com. And then I am on Instagram at Nathan underscore Ogloff, TikTok at Nathan underscore Ogloff, Twitter, which is now X, but that's, screw it. I'm going to call it Twitter. I don't care. I don't care, <laughs> I don't, I don't care what Musk says. Um, at it's Twitter. Un, yeah, so it's, it's Twitter at unusual author. Oh, I also have a Facebook page called The Forge Work of Nathan Ogluff, which you guys can um, join in on if you want. And um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, listeners. If you're looking for more, check us out at fantasticbookspod.com where we have book reviews, reading list suggestions, merch, and you can even send us a message. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram at Fantastic Books Pod. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks. Thanks. Golden Rise Media.